The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and today's episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Ibram Kendi. He's an American author. He's a professor. He's an anti-racism activist. He's written so many books, children's books for adults, books on raising anti-racist children, workbooks. And I wanted to have him on because we've had a lot of conversations since the Supreme Court ruled that affirmative action was illegal. And I can't think of anybody better to talk about it than Dr. Kendi. And then, of course, to talk about what we can be doing so that, you know, as he puts it, we're not just armchair anti-racists. But I also wanted to have a candid conversation with him because I want to speak to people for whom they care about this, but it's not going to be the central focus of their parenting versus saying that the only way to be anti-racist is to be a revolutionary. Because I want to address the reality that our whole world, all of our children are better off when we promote anti-racism and also that we have a lot on our minds. And there is definitely a disconnect between the anti-racism movement and the huge space of parents who support anti-racism and who want to do right in the world and raise their kid as anti-racist, but for whom it is not their central focus. And people who are overtly disinterested in making anti-racism a part of raising their children. So that's a hard conversation to have with such a luminary because he's the one to talk about this. And yet I wanted him to speak to every parent. And so he did, which is so cool. There's so much more that you can get from his work. He has beautiful children's books, Magnolia Flower, Goodnight Racism, The Making of Butterflies. And then he has How to Raise an Anti-Racist and How to Be a Young Anti-Racist. If you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to write a little review, say what you specifically liked, and of course, give it a five-star rating. Both of those things help highlight the podcast and get the word out there. And you can follow me on my Substack, drlisapressman.substack.com. And don't forget to subscribe to my Raising Good Humans podcast premium on Apple Podcasts. This current season is all about technology social media, smartphones. Dr. Kendi, thank you so much for being here. I'm so honored to have you. I have so many questions. I know that the audience is predominantly folks who are raising children. So the topic of anti-racism is so top of mind for so many of us. There are many conversations about this going on. We've had many conversations about this on the podcast. What I'm hoping for is a nuanced conversation with you. I was reading through some of the footnotes that were the changes that you've made in the book. And I was thinking, this is such an opportunity to just understand some of the fundamentals. And also, if you're comfortable with it, like I really think just timing wise, we're thinking about the Supreme Court ruling. Can we dive into that? Well, I think that it is critically important for families to recognize that our K-12 through educational system is not 
only deeply inequitable, is not only deeply segregated, but it's also harming different families in different ways. And so I think people may be aware of of the fact that on average, predominantly white school districts receive more funding than predominantly black and brown school districts. And like with anything else, those school districts and schools with more resources can likely create a better educational experience for students. But also, studies are showing that our highly segregated schools, not only segregated economically, but even racially, are are even harming white students. And, And one of the most obvious ways that it's harming white students is that studies consistently show that white students who go to diverse schools are not only less likely to express racist ideas, but they're also more likely to be taught anti-racist ideas, typically ideas that really encourage many of the qualities that are critical to being successful in a number of careers, like critical thinking, like multicultural sort of literacy. And so in many ways, by segregating our schools, even white students are being deprived of some of the skills that are necessary for them to thrive you know, in our society. Do you think this is going to have the kind of impact of removing the opportunities and diversity that a lot of these wonderful schools could have inhabited or where a lot of students could have been inhabited? So yes, I mean, the anti-affirmative action, both litigants and, and judges went after the only collegiate admissions factor that primarily benefits Black, Brown, and Indigenous students as well as low-income students. They did not go after the factors that primarily benefit white and wealthy students, which are legacy admissions, which are boost if you're the children of employees or if you're the children of donors or boost if you're an athlete. And most athletic programs in colleges are predominantly white, particularly the non-revenue generating sports. So they didn't go after those. They went after those that are actually diversifying student bodies because clearly they aren't interested in in, in diverse student bodies. And again, this is not only going to hinder students of color, but it's also going to hinder low-income white students, middle-income white students, even that white student who is quite brilliant, but it doesn't necessarily show up on her standardized test, or she wasn't able to get test prep, which boosts her score like some of her friends. So what's a path forward? Like, I know that some of the schools Harvard came out and said, basically, like, great, no problem. Just write your essays and let us know your experiences. And the hope would be that was Harvard's way of saying, screw you to the Supreme Court's ruling and that they'll adjust accordingly. Because to me, because of the way you write and because of the way you teach, what I read is like, here's a problem. Here's what we can do as a path forward. Not just here's a problem. And this one felt like, here's a huge problem. And it feels in many ways like now we're adding more barriers that weren't even there just a couple of weeks ago. And I'm not saying affirmative action was the solution for everything. Obviously, that didn't solve so much. But 
I just wonder, like, what is the path forward from that? So what I'm hoping personally is, is the path forward is that this opens up a larger effort to demonstrate that these other admissions factors are not race neutral. So that's why I recently wrote a piece in The Atlantic that argued that race neutral is the, is the new separate but equal. And so a century ago, you, you had the Supreme Court basically substantiating or allowing these highly segregated schools on the premise that they were separate but equal when everyone knew that was not true. Similarly, the Supreme Court has banned affirmative action on the premise that it is the only admission factor that uses race. And so for us to now recognize how race is used in other admissions factors, which I also named, which can then allow us to challenge those admissions factors, which can then allow us to build a more equitable admissions series of metrics so that truly those students who, uh, you know, we can truly have a, a meritorious admissions criteria. And so to me, that's the way forward, to expose the fallacy of race neutrality, just as we exposed a century ago, the fallacy of separate but equal. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash humans and get on your way to being your best self. Obviously, mental health is a huge part of our well-being and a huge part of my mission. So if there's a way for you to get support for your mental health, I'm going to share it with you. If you're thinking about starting therapy, but you feel overwhelmed with choices or you are having trouble finding clinicians, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if that wasn't the right fit. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com humans today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash humans. You deserve to take care of your own mental health so you can be there for your family. With BetterHelp, you know that you can have access to support that we know is so good for families, particularly caregivers. The best thing you can do for your children is to take care of your own mental health. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash humans. So why is this so alienating? Is anti-racism work alienating some to the point where we've now got a Supreme Court ruling that feels overtly racist? Is this really all about fear? I think it's alienating because, well, first, there, there are people who know that they benefit from the existing structure. Right. They know that down the street from their home, there's a, a test prep company that they can easily send their kid to and their kid could get their score boosted two or three hundred points. And, and so why would they challenge the current system that they feel have allowed their kids to elevate over other kids, you know, into these highly selective institutions? And then you have other people who are the children who went to these institutions, who went on to their jobs, 
who all the while thought that they were so much smarter than everyone else. And that's why they got into those colleges. That's why they got that job. And it's very difficult for people to look in the mirror of their past and say, hey, I received specific advantages because of policies and practices that other people didn't get. You know what? I'm not that smart. Or in other words, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. Or yes, I am smart, but there were other kids who were just as smart, but they didn't get the same advantages that I did. It's very hard for people to admit that to themselves. I just went to take my daughter to debate camp at Dartmouth, and I went to Dartmouth. I watched the experience of my brain going back and forth between kind of ethics, bigger picture responsibility, and personal hopes and dreams for my kid. And I see, I get it. It's hard because I went right to like something that is very meaningful for the world. I went right to like, well, how does this affect my backyard in particular the most? And I just wonder, like, is that the kind of thinking that is the problem? Certainly. But I also think part of it, particularly as we think about raising our children, is when a parent realizes that, like, you know what, if my daughter does want to go here, she'll benefit from the fact that she's a legacy. And then that parent recognizes, hey, you know, students of color at this institution have historically been excluded. So there's more white legacies than students of color. If a parent recognizes that, then that parent has two options. One option is to tell that child, you know what, if if you get into this school, then you're going to benefit from this policy that predominantly benefits white children. And then say to the child, that, you know, there's nothing wrong with that we should be benefiting from. To me, which is problematic on one hand, because then it's sort of teaching the child to sort of chase every sort of lane in society where they can sort of get up on others based on who they are or their Mm -hmm. background. Or you don't say anything to the child. And then the child assumes that they got into that institution solely based on their own merit, which then causes them to have a a higher sense of self or basically think higher of themselves than they truly are, right? And and then that leads to what I call in in my work, this sort of conceited insecurity. I think, and I wrote this book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist, and the last chapter specifically talked about raising a child who is humbly confident. I like that. So they don't, they, of course have a a sense of humility. You know what? My personhood, the groups that I come from are not better than any other group. But at the same time, you know, I'm worthy. I'm smart. I'm special. I'm confident in my abilities. And so it's if we don't tell the child how they got boosted, they won't develop a humble confidence. If we do tell the child (laughs) that they did get boosted, then we'll almost sort of directly create this sort of conceited insecurity. Is it possible to say, hey, I'm aware of this. I know you're working hard and this is one of the paths you might take. You will benefit in many ways. And this is just one example. Use that responsibly in this world. I think you can say to a child that I recognize that this practice or policy that we're benefiting from is unjust. So when we get in there, we should be part of the struggle to eliminate this Mm -hmm. policy. So it's almost like, for instance, a, you know, a person of color or woman is able to enter into 
a deeply sexist or racist space as the only one, because they can only sort of stand one of us. And then that person decides, okay, you know, since I'm here, I'm going to use my space, my power to ensure that the sexist and racist policies that have led to there being only one, you know, are eliminated. Okay. So while we're talking about that, what's the path forward to being in that space? Okay. So what I have noticed, and I don't know what other experiences are, and it's hard because in this conversation, I really don't know the research very well. I'm a developmental psychologist. So like I know about the developmental history, but what I'm curious about is I'm watching how the conversations seem to be so polarizing and so extreme. How do you get to a point where you can make big changes and be convincing and not sit in comfort and also not alienate people by putting them in a stress response so they just shut down and then nothing happens? What's well, It's interesting you ask this question as we're talking about affirmative action, because for 20 years, the court allowed affirmative action based on what was known as the diversity rationale. And that diversity rationale was largely advocated for by corporate America for the Grutter case that happened in 2003, in which you had corporate America basically come in and state that studies have shown that more diverse sort of business units and staffs are actually more efficient and more profitable. And so if you cut off affirmative action, it's going to be more likely to cut off the ability for our staffs to diversify, which then is going to make it harder for us to make money. So that was sort of, it's the sort of known as the diversity rationale. I mentioned that in in reference to this question, because what that ultimately states is that if you are, let's say, an older white male at a company and you're advocating for women and people of color to be excluded, you're advocating literally for your company to not be as profitable as another company, which means you're advocating for you not to get that raise, for you not to get that bonus, for you not to be able to advance in your career. And it can be spoken to that person in that way. It's actually in your interests in this specific sense to bring in more women and people of color, because then you will be able to benefit from it. So that's the language. It's not asking people to just care for others. It's also saying like, this is on all of us for the benefit of all of us. Because if you approach it as an expectation of caring for others, some people view that as a threat. Is that what I'm hearing? That is what you're hearing. And I guess I've been, I wrote another book called Stamp from the Beginning. At the the end of it, I, I talked about that what we actually need isn't necessarily altruism for people to be anti-racist, but we need people to have intelligent self-interest. And what racist ideas do is it actually results in people having unintelligent self-interest because then they advocate for policies and practices that they think are helping them when in the end they're actually harming them. From what I have read, what makes sense is trying to Think about what human beings really do and how they act and how they respond in a realistic enough way that you can serve the greater good, but also know that you're serving yourself. But um, in the case of affirmative action, I can't tell you how many people, and again, 
I had the thought in my own head just this weekend, really thought how horrible and also will this benefit my kids if they Mm. are white? And it was, it's the first real time event that is so overtly putting people in this position who I think genuinely were against the ruling. Yeah. And I think that the opponents of affirmative action have framed affirmative action as anti-white and to a lesser extent an anti-Asian. And that then means that they have simultaneously almost indirectly framed standardized test scores or legacies or some of these other factors as, quote, pro-white. And it's actually much more complicated than that, because even as I stated earlier, the way that the system is set up or the based on our current inequities that, for instance, standardized tests, which primarily according to studies, show the wealth of the parents of the test takers. And we have this massive racial wealth gap. So which means that having that as an admissions factor primarily benefits white people relative to people of color. But what I've long urged white Americans to think about isn't whether a policy benefits them relative to people of color, but whether the policy benefits them relative to another policy. So an example, would it benefit my child more if there were no standard, if that wasn't an admissions factor? And what I think white Americans will see is actually it would benefit my child more yeah. if, there were, if that wasn't even more than having it there. And so, but that's what the conservators of racism have largely been preaching to white Americans to get them to support racist policies. It's very simply, this benefits you more than people of color, so therefore you should support it, as opposed to a different policy. Like, for instance, our current funding model benefits white families more than kids of color, but a radically different funding model where we fund education like we fund the military would benefit white families more. So how, along those lines, what is the danger of not kind of thinking about raising our kids in this anti-racist framework? and? While we're talking about this anti-racist framework, can you please help everybody understand the misuse of critical race theory? What's the path forward? No. So I think I can answer the second one first because it's quite simple. So we had this pretty significant um, emergence of not only demonstrations against police violence and racism, in the summer of 2020, but a tremendous number of people who were buying books and learning about uh, Black life or learning about racism. And included in that were young people. There were young people all over the country demonstrating at their high schools, at their middle schools, demanding a more anti-racist education. They felt that their curriculums were not as diverse enough. And so uh, in reaction to that, there was an effort to say that anti-racism is the actual problem, not racism. And those who wanted to make that case, and, and you know, they actually have been open about this. They couldn't directly say anti-racism is wrong because how could right. anti-racism be wrong? So instead, 
they used the term critical race theory, which was not a term that was widely used or known among the populace since it largely was a, a field that existed among legal professionals and in law schools. And then they packed that term with meaning, which essentially the meaning was CRT is anti-white. And then that allowed them to say anti-racism was CRT, which then allowed them to say anti-racism was anti-white. And actually the term, the, the phrase anti-racist is anti-white is an old white supremacist talking point. And, and so it allowed this white supremacist talking point to now go mainstream. And it, it caused then many uh, white families to say, oh, this is harmful mm-hmm. to me and my, my children. And, but I, I think what many of those families did not realize is that what's actually harmful to your child is racist ideas, <laughs> what this anti-racist education is trying to protect your child from. And so just as you have kids of color who, because they're being hit by these racist ideas who think that there's something wrong with them because of the color of their skin, you have white children being taught that there's something right about them because of the color of their skin. Just as you have uh, kids of color who are, are thinking that they're a problem because of their skin color, you have white kids who are saying, I'm not just special because I'm kind, I'm special because I'm white. And so what is what is protecting them from those ideas? And to me, sending a child out into the world where you have all these messages of white superiority and black inferiority swirling around them is equivalent to taking your child who just started walking out on the street and just letting them walk across the street (laughs) without teaching them to look both ways (laughs) so they can protect themselves. Because that's really what it's about. It's about teaching children to protect themselves, knowing that they're living in a dangerously racist society. So when people say that something is racist, again, by the way, I know that there's like so many, this is, this conversation is spinning with the assumption that there are like more white people listening than people of the global majority. So I I think that's probably just because my own, because I'm a white woman having this conversation, but I also like really want to pull out those things that come up. I don't think anti-racism is, needs to be sold to people of color as much. Like, I hate to talk about it from a marketing perspective. On the other hand, when you talk about these things, I see that you've, you you know, you're thinking about how are we reframing some of these ideas? And so that is in a way, it's not as if this is new work, right? It's just that it became so central to the conversation in a way that it hasn't been before for a lot more people than it was before. Yeah, and I, I think just so you know, I, I try to to speak to both parents of kids of color and kids because this is impacting them in similar and in, in different ways. There are kids of color who think that anti-racism or is for white people, just as there are white people who believe they're not racist. Mm-hmm. And so it's two different forms of denial. You know, but to your question, I do think it, it is important for parents to realize that if if a teacher gives a unit on slavery, that unit will not only chronicle, let's say, white enslavers, 
it's also going to chronicle white and black and indigenous abolitionists. <laughs> and so that ch- white child, like that black child, will be able to see white people on the good and the bad side of history. And that white child, like that black child, will be able to hopefully identify with the abolitionists who look like them or don't look like them. And so I'm mentioning this because the assumption that when we teach about racism in the past or present is that, quote, white people are always the villains. And that's just simply not true. So that demonstrates that those who are articulating that don't even know white American history. And they don't know that our movements have been multiracial. And I think that's been one of the the challenges. The very people who are against teaching history demonstrate through their arguments against teaching history that they don't know history, right? And it just becomes this circle, right? Their lack of knowledge of history is leading to them to support the non-teaching of, you know, of history. But I also think that it is just so important for us as parents to realize that our children are the group of people that we are the least likely to engage about race and racism, even though they are the most vulnerable to, let's say, racist messages. We know, if we take this off race, we know how our kids are like sponges, (laughs) right? We know how impressionable they are. But somehow, when we put it back on race, they're not impressionable. <laughs> they're not spenders. They're not going to see what we see. They're not going to hear what we hear. They're not going to internalize that. Like, I don't know how people sit in that contradiction. This may be because of where I am, but it does feel like right now I have two teenagers. So that's probably part of it. I feel like they're keenly aware of the distance between what my generation, how we were trained to think about things and their generation. And it feels very much like because they're watching, because kids are watching, and certainly with younger kids where they're just, there is more of that absorption without the critical thinking and without questioning your parents. Now I have teenagers where there's there's mostly only questioning me. Is the raising anti-racist kids really the same thing as how to be an anti-racist? I think we could do it together. Right. I think just as we as as adults are unlearning, let's say, racist ideas and, and seeking to learn anti-racist ideas, so too we could be learning those anti-racist ideas with our young people. The beauty about them is they're not having to unlearn. <laughs> right? right. So it's easier for them. But we can do it together because chances are our kids are gonna have a number of questions based on if we're, you know, introducing them to books and experiences that allow them to sort of learn and understand, they're going to have questions. And we likely are not going to be able to answer those questions, which then allows us to show curiosity by learning those answers with them. To me, that's a beautiful thing. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to do this. I have a billion more questions for you. I'll put all the information and people can armchair it first and then take action. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sounds great. Nice meeting you.
Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.